Hey, podcast fans, this is Chris Webster, founder of the APN, and I just want to thank you for downloading this episode. Please consider becoming a member of the APN if you're not already and helping us make more great shows and get them out to the world. Head over to arcpodnet.com slash members or click the link in the show notes. On to the show. You're listening to the Archaeology Podcast Network. And welcome to The Dirt, a podcast about archaeology, anthropology, and our shared human past. I'm Anna. And I'm Amber. And this week, we're talking about hot bean juice and steamy leaf water. Gross! <laughs> right? Right, it's pretty gross. But not, it's not gross when you call it coffee and tea. So, yeah. that. Um, and other morning drinks. We're going to talk about other morning drinks, too. People rely on many different beverages to get them going in the morning, and we'll cover several of these. But coffee and tea especially have a whole lot of historical and political stuff going on, some of which has made its way into the archaeological record. Um, just out of curiosity, which one do you like better, coffee or tea? I think that mediocre tea is better than mediocre coffee. That both does and does not answer my question. Yeah. So I <laughs> like if it's good coffee, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I prefer coffee. But mm-hmm. if I don't know what it's going to be, I'll probably have tea. Mm-hmm. But, okay. but both of them kind of give me the angsties. So I. Yeah, same. Same. Yeah. I, th- I really like a nice hot cup of very strong, very sweet black tea, a builder's as they say, across the pond. But uh, I do like coffee, too. But yeah, I, uh, I have to be very careful about my caffeine intake because I'm a delicate flower. Oh. Anyway, here we go. So there's a pretty well-known story about the origins of coffee, and it may have a nugget of truth to it. And just for fun, as I started my research for this script, I googled coffee origin story, and I got 180 million results. Did I investigate all of those results? I did not, but it's a good place to start. So the aforementioned story features an Ethiopian goat shepherd, which I suppose would be a goat herd, who noticed that one day his goats were enjoying the berries of a particular bush and after eating them became especially frisky and energetic and didn't sleep at night. And some stories even give the goat <laughs> had herd- panic attacks. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. Uh, Some stories even give the goat herd a name, Kaldi. So before we get more sort of into this story, um, a brief botanical interlude. Ah. Mm. Walk with me down the garden path. (laughs) Coffee is made from the bean of the coffee plant. Coffea arabica or Coffea canifora in the Rubiaceae family. It's native to the forest understory of the East African highlands, a region known as Kaffa. Ah. <laughs> it grows best with frequent ra- <laughs> It grows best with frequent rains, warm but not extreme temperatures. I mean same. And hilly ground 600 to 1200 meters or 2000 to 4000 feet above sea level and therefore has been cultivated in high tropical regions around the globe. The coffee plant is a woody shrub, and it grows in the wild as high as 12 meters, which is 40 feet. That is tall. But cultivated trees are pruned to 2 meters, or 6.5 feet, to make harvesting easier. 
Small white flowers give rise to a red, fleshy fruit, the coffee cherry, which contains a pair of beans. A single coffee tree produces enough beans for about 40 cups of coffee per year. And most coffee cherries are harvested by hand rather than by machine. And that's because not all of the cherries ripen at once. So if you were to use a machine to shake the tree or somehow get all the berries at once, you'd get a whole lot more um, unripe berries and it would be counterproductive. So usually harvested by hand. Though native to Africa, the majority of coffee is now grown in South and Central America, with Brazil being the single largest producer. In 2000, world coffee production was more than 6 billion kilograms, or 6.6 .6 million tons, almost all of which was exported, making coffee one of the largest commodities traded on the international market. Almost one quarter of the world's coffee is imported by the countries of North America. That tracks. But back to Kaldi, maybe, and his maybe apocryphal story. Some accounts place that Godi discovery around 850 CE, but again, eh, apocryphal. I found a story about coffee's origins by Giorgio Milos at The Atlantic, and I'm going to read an excerpt from it here. Quote, there is no documentation, so I came up with my own theory. I imagine one of our starved ancestors, thousands or millions of years ago, walking around what is now Ethiopia, looking for something to eat. Desperate, ravenous, he discovers a bush full of red fruit. He's a little worried. He doesn't know if it's poisonous, but left with little choice, he picks a berry and puts it in his mouth. He finds a relatively unpulpy inside, along with two big beans. The taste is sweet, signaling nourishment. Maybe this is okay, he thinks. He continues eating until he feels satiated and realizes he feels more than just full. He feels rested, awake. His reflexes are alive. When night comes, he can't sleep. He likes this sensation, all these sensations, and decides to bring this new fruit to his people. And quite possibly from that moment, coffee, if not yet its beverage form, becomes part of his tribe's diet. You may think, yeah, yeah, speculation, but hang on. Very real echoes of this story are found today in a tradition of an Ethiopian tribe, the Gala, who regularly consume energy balls made by blending animal fat and macerated coffee cherries. Oh, so it's like um, that keto, uh, like bulletproof coffee, where it's yeah. just like butter, butter and butter and caffeine. Coffee. Yeah, yeah. I mean, substitute <laughs> butter for. I mean, butter is animal fat. But it's not. <laughs> I know, but it's not animal body fat. <laughs> Right. So I don't know if but if by animal fat, I don't know if they mean something like tallow, which is like animal body fat or yeah. milk fats like butter. Doesn't really matter. The bottom line for coffee's history, those who consumed it early on were after the stimulant substance it contained, that alkaloid well known today as caffeine. Known for me as, ah! <laughs> All of coffee's legends tell of its energizing effect from Kaldi's goats to a story of Muhammad, who after consuming a hot black liquid given to him by the angel Gabriel, promptly removed 40 knights from their horses and satisfied 40 virgins in just one day. And by removed 40 knights from their horses, I assume he it means he fought them and won. Not just like, can I you get down, sir? I don't sir. care for either of the euphemisms used there. No, they're um, clunky. The first known writer to mention coffee also was one of the first to treat medicine in an encyclopedic manner. The Persian doctor Abu Bakr Muhammad ibn Zakaria el-Razi, a mouthful, also known, for maybe obvious reasons, as just Razi. And he was around from 850 to 922 CE. 
Razi was definitely a polymath, one of the greatest physicians in all history, a great philosopher, an alchemist, an astronomer, and the superintendent of the hospital at Baghdad. He wrote nearly 200 learned books on medicine, surgery, theology, mathematics, and astronomy, but his principal work is Al-Hayui. Did I get that right? How'd I do? Hi. Al-Hayui. Or The Continent, the Encyclopedia of Greek, Pre-Islamic, Arab, Indian, and even Chinese medical knowledge. He also had a sense of humor that makes me think I'd be friends with him. Two of his titles were On the Fact That Even Skillful Physicians Cannot Heal All Diseases and Why People Prefer Quacks and Charlatans for Skillful Physicians. Oh, we need that guy on YouTube. Yeah, bring him back. We need him. We do. <laughs> His next title, Why Your Mother is Watching Those Things. <laughs> Part three. <laughs> Other early writings establish Yemen on the southern part of the Arabian Peninsula, just across the Red Sea from Ethiopia, as home to the first coffee plantations starting in the early 15th century. Coffee plants were brought over from Ethiopia, Yemen lacking its own indigenous coffee. There, Sufi monks prepared an infusion of coffee cherry leaves to stay awake and pray through the night. The first real roasting and grinding activities likely also happened here. So it seems like every part of the coffee plant, I mean, I don't know about the, the branches and stuff, but it seems like every part of it is kind of infused with caffeine. Well, and also um, coffee processing coffee cherries themselves rather than coffee mm -hmm. beans um, is still it recently in the past few years got got popular so like yeah the cascara cascara yeah yeah starbucks made a big thing about that um yeah i was a i was a partner at the time um when it came out so yeah but it's it's basically cascara is is technically a tea because you steep Mm -hmm. Um, you steep the, the like dried sort of husks, like the skins of the coffee cherries. Is it a tisane? I suppose it would be. And so what folks do is they just, uh, sort of like concentrate it down and then you have, um, like a, a, it's, it's a thing at a few chains. Like there's a really good one at Blue Bottle Coffee. <laughs> um, but yeah, Not it's sponsored. <laughs> goodness, no, um, and so, yeah, so that's something that is is still common, although it got, you know, recently Columbus. And that's why you can get it at, well, I guess, yeah, that's why yep. you can get it at trendy coffee shops. Yeah. Now, coffee's true worldwide journey came with the Turkish conquest of the Arabian Peninsula during the 16th century. So the the Ottoman conquests. It was the Ottoman Empire that brought coffee to entirely new places. Mm -hmm. And um, I'm going to read to you from an article titled Clay Tobacco Pipes and Coffee Cup Sherds in the Archaeology of the Middle East, Artifacts of Social Tensions from the Ottoman Past by Uzi Baram. I found this when I was researching and I just gave myself a little pat on the back. And I was like, Amber will like this. <laughs> The archaeological record for the Ottoman centuries contains a wide range of artifacts. Clay tobacco pipes and porcelain coffee cup sherds are chosen because of their association with pleasure. 
They're material, they're the material correlations for the big fix of modernity, commodities of pleasure and recreation that gained global popularity after the 16th century. For the Middle East, the widespread consumption of coffee and tobacco represents the advent of new social behaviors. Those behaviors appear early in the process that leads to the emergence of the modern world. The consumption of the commodities became embedded into daily life for the inhabitants of the region, the tobacco pipe as a symbol of the Ottoman Empire and coffee as a sign of hospitality. These commodities of pleasure exist at the nexus of power and social relationships. Although impacted by global spatial inequalities, the behaviors did not arise because of the West. The social relationships engendered by the commodities can be traced to transformations in the Middle East during the early Islamic period. I just, this was excerpted from the article, but I just really, really liked this in terms of kind of a little mental picture. But so coffee, like you said just now, was often defined in Islamic literature as one of life's great pleasures. Another example is embodied by the 12th century historian Ibn Asakir, who defined pleasure as, quote, eating a banana in the shade of the Dome of the Rock, end quote. That's very nice. Doesn't that sound nice? Yeah. Sounds very chill. Um, and then, and then back to this, this article yes. by Uzi Baram, um, quote, the sequence for the ceramics used for coffee drinking is clear in its broad sweeps. Um, the travelogue of Avilia Chelebi describes the coffee cups found in the Istanbul markets in regards to the varying levels of prestige associated with the different types. From excavations across the region have come examples of that range of ceramics. However, the ceramics are best contextualized in the coffee house. The material culture of coffee during the early expansion of its consumption in the Middle East includes earthenware and metal coffee bean roasters, so circular plates pierced with small holes for cooking over coals, cylinder coffee meals, metal coffee boilers, and small cups of Chinese porcelains for drinking. The apparatus included either mortar and pestles or mills for grounding the coffee beans, large cauldrons for cooking the coffee, large clay vessels and vats for storing the coffee, and copper kettles. Because the co because coffee became associated with sociability, the objects took on social meanings. The serving cups were made of either earthenware or porcelain, depending on the establishment and its clientele. In particular, the Chinese and Iznik porcelain cups became symbols of prestige and authority. Archaeologically, the porcelain sherds from these coffee cups are the most likely finds from the consumption of coffee. Typically dismissed as too modern by archaeologists, few archaeological assemblages are extant. Evidence comes from shipwrecks and the production centers of Iznik. The patterns for this class of material culture seem to consist of a shift in orientation from local production of imitations of the Chinese styles to the dominance of Western European styles and products. Yeah, so tastes change. Aesthetics change and the things that are deemed fancy change and you can see that so yeah how about we take a little coffee break and by coffee break i mean ad break yeah it's chris webster again if you haven't checked out our new parent website culturomedia.com then please do culturo is spelled k-u-l-t-u-r-o and it's where we promote all of our live events we've got one coming up in november Check it out over at Cultura when it gets posted. If it's already happened and you're hearing this, then as a member, you can go to your member pages and see the event recording. Our live events are always free, but you have to show up during the event to see it. So that's culturomedia.com for all our live events and more. Culturomedia.com. Yeah. 
Chris Webster here, founder of the APN and host of several shows. I just wanted to let you know about our membership program and what it offers. Members of the APN get, for just $7.99 a month or cheaper if you pay for the year, ad-free episodes so you don't have to listen to me on the breaks, membership in our Slack team so you can continue the conversation with hosts and other members, and exclusive access to any of our live event recordings. Live events are always free, but you only get to watch the recording if you're a member. So head over to arcpodnet.com slash members for more info and to become a member. Our podcasts are always free, but this is just a little something extra and it really helps us out. That's arcpodnet.com slash members. Okay, we're back. And with that nod to material culture from China, let's shift over to tea and to the archaeology thereof. So the oldest known evidence for tea drinking, which keep in mind, probably means that it was a thing before this, is from the tomb of an emperor of the Han dynasty. And so I'm going to read from Smithsonian Magazine. The ancient tea was discovered in the Hanyang Lin Mausoleum, a tomb built for the ancient Han emperor Jing Di near the modern day city of Xi'an in western China. When the tomb was excavated during the 1990s, archaeologists discovered many treasures, including pottery figures, weapons, and even several chariots, complete with horses. Alongside these relics, the researchers also discovered a mass of partially decomposed plants. Some of these 2,150-year-old remains were preserved so well that researchers could identify grains like millet and rice. But it took a team of scientists armed with specialized equipment decades to realize that this mysterious brick of plant matter was actually ancient tea. In the study, published in Nature's Open Access Journal Scientific Reports, which we will link to in our show notes, the researchers note that although the first unambiguous written reference to tea dates back to 59 BCE, the exact origins of one of the world's most popular beverages is still a mystery. Its popularity among the Western Uyghur people and Northern Chinese is generally attributed to the Tang dynasty that ruled during the 7th and 8th centuries CE, and the previous oldest sample of the tea remains date back to about a thousand years ago. The researchers identified the remains as tea leaves by examining the tiny crystals on their surface, according to the study, and this showed that the tea was likely a particularly fine one made from young, unopened tea buds and dates back to around 141 BCE when Emperor Jingdi died and was sealed in his tomb. There were not seals in his tomb. This discovery not only indicates that Jingdi was a big tea drinker, but suggests that tea was already being exported to Tibet along trade routes that may have helped blaze the trail for the Silk Road, which starts in Xi'an. So we don't have an archaeological marker for the very beginning of tea cultivation, but never fear, genetics is on the case. And so now we hop over to an article in Nature by Liam Drew. Around 500 CE, according to legend, the Buddhist monk Bodhidharma spent nine years facing the wall of a cave, silently meditating, yet remaining awake and focused. Eventually, though, he dozed off. And when he awoke, he was so angry with himself that he ripped off his eyelids and threw them to the ground in disgust, as of course he would. From this discarded flesh grew a plant from which Bodhidharma's followers could make a beverage that both stimulated their minds and calmed their nerves. It was the first tea plant, and the drink was perfect for meditating monks. 
The plant's recently sequenced genome tells a different story, however, meaning that scientists will have to construct a more plausible account of tea's transformation from a plant growing wild in China to a crop that is the basis of the world's second most popular drink after water. I mean, I guess technically it, it is also water. It's mostly water. I mean, that's like saying, like, vampires drink mostly water. If, you're, if we're saying that tea is also water. It's more water than blood. Anyway, every day, the world's population consumes more than 2 billion cups of tea. Tea is grown commercially in more than 60 countries and yields an annual harvest of more than 5 million tons, that's the one with two ends, of leaves, which are plucked or cut from the plant's freshest growth. The tea plant's journey is reflected in its name, Camellia sinensis. Camellia indicates that tea is a woody plant closely related to the ornamental bushes that have earned a place in innumerable gardens owing to their flowers, and sinensis signifies its Chinese origins. Okay, so brief literature tangent. So uh, you may recognize that plant name, Camellia. I guess if you're into gardening, yes, duh. But also if you're into 19th century literature or opera. La Dame aux Camellias, literally the lady with the camellias, commonly known in its English translation as Camille, is a novel by Alexandre Dumas Fille. So, Junior, not the Dumas that wrote The Three Musketeers, but his son. And so that novel was first published in 1848 and subsequently adapted by the author for the stage. And that work became the 1853 opera La Traviata. Oh. Mm-hmm. I finally figured out what you were talking about. <laughs> what I was banging on about. I was like, okay. Mm. <laughs> so the reason I bring this up and the reason camellias are relevant is that the female protagonist of this story is a courtesan shared by several men. And she wears a white camellia flower to signal that she is available to her lovers and a red camellia to signal that she is menstruating and therefore unavailable. So I was thinking maybe we can... Uh, reintroduce wearing the red camellia so talk about a period piece oh boy hey so uh back to genetics do you need to recover from the brilliance of that joke or no i just was thinking about sort of the regressive attitudes of the time um well naturally yeah (laughs) all right it's overly simplistic to imagine that there is a moment at which a wild plant transforms into an agricultural product i think we can (laughs) I think everybody is is with us so far, right? It doesn't <laughs> yeah, just it like, doesn't just go like <laughs> corn. <laughs> so uh, Jonathan Wendell, a plant evolutionary genomicist at Iowa State University in Ames, says, "quote Usually, there's an initial domestication followed by a long period of improvement, <laughs> and that improvement is still going on in many of our plants and animals." End quote. For every plant currently grown by humans, that initial domestication involved humans taking an interest in wild-growing plants, at first gathering fruit or leaves, for example, and then starting to cultivate them for their own use. Consciously or not, growers would preferentially propagate plants that, that provided the qualities that they most wanted to see, and doing so exposed that species to artificial selection. Over time, this usually results in big changes to the species. For example, Teosinte, the wild ancestor of maize, corn, is a highly branched wild grass bearing many tiny ears of corn, strikingly different to the robust single stems of cultivated maize that produce just a few large ears. 
By contrast, however, farmed Brazil nuts are almost indistinguishable from their wild forebears. The origins of tea are clouded by the fact that wild Camellia sinensis plants have never been identified unequivocally. Close cousins of Camellia sinensis grow wild in China and neighboring countries today, but they clearly belong to a different species. And where wild-growing Camellia sinensis has been found, most scientists think that such plants are feral ones descended from crops. So they're just, <laughs> just out back having babies. Yeah, just roaming causing the countryside. Causing a ruckus at night. Feral tea. <laughs> Breeding tea probably selected for traits such as higher yield, perhaps by choosing plants with seasonal uniformity in growth and resistance to cold and disease. But almost certainly, there would also have been selection for the production of compounds that make drinking tea a pleasurable experience. Mm. Like we eating can't a banana be... in the shade of the Dome of the Rock. Exactly. We can't be sure why each of teas of components evolved, but some general principles provide clues. The caffeine that gives tea its stimulatory effects is a neurotoxin to insects and other invertebrates and might have antimicrobial benefits. Catechins, compounds that contribute to tea's betterness are, and, are credited, and are credited with mediating the potential health benefits of, health, of tea drinking, are flavonoids, which are a range of antioxidant molecules that help plants to deal with oxidative stress. Some also offer the plant protection from herbivores or shield it from ultraviolet radiation. And theanine, the chemical linked to tea's potential calming effects, is an amino acid that is likely to contribute to nitrogen biochemistry and the synthesis of plant material. Yeah, you can purchase a supplement that's called L-theanine or theanine. I'm not sure how it's pronounced, but yeah, but it's supposed to kind of de-stress and help calm your brain. In the way that supplements are supposed to do anything, which is like, maybe. <laughs> Early texts about tea, dating from the 8th century, show that it was often prepared with extra flavoring such as onion, ginger, salt, or orange, suggesting that the tea alone was unpalatable. The taste was improved by innovations in processing the leaves. These methods enabled the production of green, white, black, and wulong teas from the same plant. But tea was also likely to have been bred for better taste. Do you want to share your fun fact? Oh, it's just um, black tea is fermented. The process of aging um, black tea leaves, like so when, when you get your sort of English breakfast or whatever tea, those leaves comes from the same plant as green tea or white tea, but the leaves have undergone uh, a slight fermentation. Yeah, all tea that's tea, tea brand tea, is from the same plant. It's just a matter of how old the leaves are. So white tea comes from from baby leaves. The so very a, youngest, freshest a yo little. A younger plant. Mm -hmm. um, and green tea comes from just leaves. And then black tea is the green tea leaves that have been processed. And wulong tea, the same thing. It's been processed in one way or another. Some of them are smoked. Yeah. Um, oh, like, uh, what is it? Pu'er tea? Mm -hmm. It's like a smoky tea. Mm. Um, work led by Liang Meng Gao, a plant evolutionary geneticist at the Chinese Academy of Sciences Kunming Institute of Botany. My goodness. So, I know. Uh, it's like a double-sided business card where you're like, where's your email address? <laughs> and they just flip it over and you're like, oh, it's back there. Okay. <laughs> After your title. Um, um, so that, that work. Su suggests that... 
there are three distinct genetic lineages of tea plants, and, provocatively, Gao's team proposes that this finding indicates that tea was domesticated on three separate occasions. Gao's team then used gen its genetic data to estimate when the three lineages diverged, taking the genetic differences between strains and then estimating the rate at which genetic changes accumulate in such plants, researchers can calculate when lineages probably last shared a common ancestor. Such calculations suggested that the Sinensis and Assamica varieties diverged 22,000 years ago long before any suggested date for the domestication of tea and consistent with two wild populations having been domesticated independently. Yeah, so different populations realized that they liked something about this particular type of plant. And yeah. They did, they did things to it. And so let's go, let's let everybody go get a top up <laughs> and we'll be right back. This is Chris Webster with the APN. I'm also a project manager for several industries. I wouldn't be able to keep on track with really anything if it wasn't for motion. With motion, I just say what I need to do, how long I think it will take, what sort of priority I think it has, and motion builds my day for me. It'll even build in breaks because, let's be honest, it's hard to remember to stop to eat lunch sometimes. So head over to arcpodnet.com motion for a free trial and a discount if you sign up. You'll kick back a small amount to the APN if you do. That's arcpodnet.com motion. Hey, fans of APN Podcasts, we've got lots of designs over at our Tee Public store. Every purchase helps out the APN with a few cents back to us. Check out the high-quality t-shirts, stickers, phone cases, coffee mugs, and a lot more. There are lots of colors to choose from in most of those items, and Tee Public often runs 30% discounts. So check out the store at arcpodnet.com shop. That's arcpodnet.com shop, and click on the link. All right, we are back. And we've been focusing on coffee and tea because those are the two big ones. Uh, but people all over the world have different morning drinks. And uh, so there's uh, we've got a brief list of them here. And then we're going to go on to talk about uh, a couple of other ones. So Agua Dulce is a Costa Rican breakfast drink, which literally translates as sweet water. And it is just that. It's hot water mixed with sugar cane. Oh, that'll get you going in the morning, very briefly. <laughs> I, yeah, if I drank that in the morning, I would be like, yeah, I need a nap. Um, small beer, generally replaced by tea in Europe after the 18th century, but small or low alcohol beer was the beverage of choice for several centuries. So all the way through the Middle Ages, um, up kind of into the Enlightenment period, which was in Europe when coffee houses really started becoming popular. They were sort of the place where you went to learn the day's news and talk to other... And when I say you, I mean if you were a man, a, a man of wealth and status. Man, man with go, land. A man with land, a landed man. Um, you would go to the coffee house and you would learn, uh, you know, news, newspapers would be at the coffee houses and you could talk to your bros and many sort of rebellions and ideas and, you know, scientific thoughts were exchanged at coffee houses. So they were sort of the, the salons of the day. Um, but before that, there was small beer because uh, it was low in alcohol. 
but there was enough alcohol in it to deal with any microbes in the water because folks didn't know about germ theory yet. And water was poison because they often didn't draw their water from clean sources. So having a low alcohol beer, maybe three, three or 4% ABV. So like your standard, your standard Budweiser or something like that is around four to 5%. So even less alcoholic than that. And that would be just the everyday drink. You drink it with breakfast, lunch, and dinner. Um, Lassi, often uh, found in sort of Southeast Asia, the Indian region. And it's a yogurt drink. It's sometimes mixed with fruit puree or spices. I do like a mango lassi. I like a, like a rose lassi. I don't like food that tastes like flowers, but I respect your <laughs> tastes. Uh, salop is a flower made from the tubers of the orchid genus Orchis. Uh, so multiple species, including Orchis mascula and Orchis militaris. Gosh. I know. It's a very tiny little performative orchis. orchis. I know. It likes to go on parades. Um, salad flour is consumed in beverages and desserts, especially in the cuisines of the former Ottoman Empire, notably in the Levant, where it is a traditional winter beverage. An increase in consumption is causing local extinctions of orchids in parts of Turkey and Iran, which is sad. Um, but salop, you may have heard of it because uh, Turkish ice cream is famous for its very particular consistency, which is sort of stretchy and chewy. Like you can take a scoop of it and it gets like a, oh, you know, like when you pull the halves of a grilled cheese sandwich apart and it does the cheese pull, mm -hmm. the ice cream kind of has that pulley consistency and it's chewy and it's that orchid tuber, the, the um, flour made from that, that pr pr produces that uh, consistency. Hmm. Yeah. I've always wanted to try that, but I don't know if I would enjoy chewing my ice cream, to be honest. I don't know. Um, soy milk is consumed hot or cold in lots of parts of Asia and elsewhere in the world. Um, so that's just a handful of possible morning drinks. You know, you got your orange juice, grapefruit juice, tomato juice, but uh, those are some interesting ones from around the world. But the one I want to spend a little bit more time on is also an anytime drink, and that is mate. So mate is a tea, or I suppose an infusion, because it's not tea in the sense of coming from the Camellia sinensis plant. It's a tea extracted from the leaves of Elex paraguariensis, which was traditionally consumed by the Gorani people for its medicinal value, longevity, and vitality. Uh, so notable tales of how it came to be, so hello etiologies, um, tend to explain the beginning of mate preparation and use include the legend of Yari, the moon, in which it is believed that yerba preparation, so yerba mate, preparation and drinking was taught to a native Gorani family by the goddess of the moon, Yari. The second legend, commonly known as the legend of the Gorani, um, and the Gorani people believed that yerba toasting and mate drinking would be introduced to native Gorani by a tall, bearded, fair-skinned god called Paishume. In this legend, the prophecy comes to be when a shaman gifted an aging Gorani man with a green plant, which he is taught to prepare. The man prepares the tea in a clay gourd, drinks it, and ultimately regains new strengths. So in all of the legends, the, no matter what happens kind of surrounding how the, the plant came to be known as the source of this tea, the preparation of mate is the same. The leaves are harvested and dried on fire, <laughs> which is 
A weird way that this person wrote that sentence, but dried over a fire. The dry leaves are then ground and mixed with water in a gourd to produce a high-quality fine infusion. This procedure has been adopted to commercially produce viable mate for export to Europe and the Middle East, as well as for local consumption. So if you see someone drinking mate traditionally, uh, especially in places like Argentina, um, you'll see them drinking out of a little... A gourd shape, so often it's like a little clay pot, and they'll be drinking it with a silver straw. And a mate straw has a very specific design because at the bottom of it, instead of just a straw being just a tube, at the bottom of it, there is a little bulb at the end that has um, holes poked through it. So it acts as a sieve because mate is typically brewed with, it's not a tea bag or anything. It's just the grounds right in there with the hot water and then drinking it through that special mate straw filters out the, the planty bits that you don't want in your mouth so much. Which is actually pretty close to how beer used to be drunk in uh, the early days of beer making in Mesopotamia, right? There's a very famous cylinder seal Maybe that comes it. from ore that shows people is it like consuming. two bros sharing a sharing two straws? There's two straws into a a little pot. A pot, yeah, yeah. There's Maybe nothing, that's what I'm thinking of. There's nothing implying sieving. The sieving, but there there are yeah, there is sort of there are like sieves and things involved in like the um, cultural complexes around wine and beer consumption because you end mm-hmm. up with dregs and stuff and milk um, for that matter. Yeah. Get rid of the curds. We went on a little journey there. In the early 1500s CE, the Tupi and Guarani tribes both consumed mate for medicinal value and for its properties as a stimulant. In 1526, Sebastian Cabo, alias Sebastian Gaboto, an Italian voyager, explored Rio del Plata in South America. He was looking for silver and gold, as they all were, which he didn't find, but he did reportedly come across the local drink and brought that back to Europe. In the early years of the 17th century, the consumption of mate spread so fast that it even surprised both church and colonial leaders. Early Spanish colonization of Paraguay and parts of South America was directly linked to the Jesuit mission and the Catholic Church in general. Oh, really? The mythical origin and ritualistic consumption of mate therefore developed great distrust from the Jesuits. According to them, This was an evil drink, which would hinder the spread of Christianity among the Indian communities. And by Indian, we mean indigenous. This author chose to use the word Indian. This led to a united opposition of the, quote, demonic drink, which eventually led to its ban within their territories in 1616. The punishment against disobeying this decree was the harshest excommunication. And exactly the same thing happened with coffee, too. In fact, at some point in maybe the 14th or 15th century, um, the Pope had to, like, come out with a statement blessing coffee like he decided that coffee was okay and he's like calm down everyone god wills like, us to drink coffee it's cool it's just like dancing in footloose yeah pretty much exactly so <laughs> the jesuits failed miserably to discourage or control yerba mate consumption and the ban was lifted as they could not compromise the growing numbers in the church they so wait the ban that the jesuits put over Yerba mate. Local communities. Like, like they showed up and they're like, stop doing that. Yeah. And then everyone was just like, no. Oh my God. And then finally the Jesuits were just like, fine, fine. Yeah. I mean, they, you know, it didn't stop them from converting a whole bunch of people. They just were just like, but we also want to drink this tea. 
Um, they therefore began to accept it and sanitized its earthly pagan origin by substituting Tupa, the Gorani Holy Spirit, who supposedly gave this yerba mate plant to the Gorani, for Santo Tome, Spanish for St. Thomas. Changing the indecent history ugh, of the beverage created a closer link between yerba mate and the missionaries. Hence, the herb is sometimes referred to as yerba misionera. Spin. I've never heard it called that. No, me neither. I'm kind of glad. Yeah, same. All right. Well, finally, let's top off this episode with a bit about another North American beverage that you may not have heard of. I certainly hadn't. Um, A thousand years ago, Native Americans in the American Southwest and Mexican Northwest, so, you know, before those two countries were there. Yeah. Yeah. were getting their buzz on in landscapes that were no obvious source where no obvious sources of caffeine grew, according to findings published in the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences. Enough. The research shows that people in the arid region who had no nearby sources of caffeine not only made drinks from cacao, the seed that is used to make chocolate, but also brewed drinks from the leaves and twigs of the Yaupon holly. That suggests that they had developed pretty extensive networks to trade caffeinated products between 750 and 1400 CE. Patricia Crown, a professor of anthropology at the University of New Mexico, led a team that analyzed 177 pottery samples from 18 sites in Arizona, Colorado, New Mexico, and Chihuahua, New Mex- and Chihuahua, New Mexico. Um, and also during the analysis, scientists were not allowed to bring any <laughs> caffeinated beverages into the lab for fear of contamination. <laughs> Just a bunch of scientists going like, uh, uh. They found caffeine residue on pieces of jars, pitchers, and mugs in 40 samples from 12 sites and concluded that the groups, quote, likely consumed stimulant drinks in communal ritual gatherings, end quote. Uh, much like people do today. Yeah. Uh, Yalpan is a caffeinated plant native to the southeast, where Native Americans brewed it into a drink used ceremonially, often in rituals that involved purging. Um, thus Yalapan's Latin name, Elex Vomitoria, uh, but it's not actually enematic. No, won't. it's associated with vomiting, but it won't make you barf. Yeah, yeah it's not like Ipecac. Um, several years ago, Crown led a team that found traces of caffeine from drinks made with Yalapan holly at a site of a mound city near the confluence of the Missouri and Mississippi rivers. That suggested that Yalapan was already extensively traded in the eastern side of what is the now the U.S. a thousand years ago. Yeah. So, yeah. Um, so, caffeine is an alkaline compound or alkalytic compound that seems to act as a deterrent for little buggies. So, I think that's why, like, you know, plants don't have caffeine in order to provide stimulants to things that eat them. Yeah, the it's a natural plants, insecticide. Yeah. So... I I just am sort of wondering how many plants contain caffeine and if it's, you know, clearly it's these particular families, Elex and and Camellia and, but I wonder how many other families of plants are also just sort of caffeinated. It's just, we don't use them It's probably not, um, they're probably, I would guess there probably are lots of plants that have evolved compounds like caffeine, Mm -hmm. but that don't work on humans or are poison. Because like there are many ways to have a natural insecticide, so I wonder if like these are the these are the you know handful that that work on humans. But you know, like think about like you know, alcohol is a poison, 
Well, caffeine is a poison. Like, caffeine is a neurotoxin. Yes. So I mean. it just doesn't work on us. That's why, like, you know, there are lots of, like... Seems to work on me. There are <laughs> lots of venomous um, spiders and things that, you know, they bite us, but they're, like, what their venom doesn't have any effect on us because right. we are not the thing that they're trying to eat. Right. And I also wanted to clear something up because in researching mate, I kept finding um, references to matine, which is supposedly a unique compound in uh, yerba mate that is like caffeine, but not. But I don't think matine exists. So caffeine is something called a xanthine. And yerba mate contains two other xanthines, theobromine, which is also in cacao, because theobroma, that's where the name comes that's, from. That's the thing that will kill dogs. Yeah, don't don't feed yerba mate to your dogs. And theophylline that have their own effects. So this seems to contradict most other evidence that matine exists. Uh, there is caffeine in yerba mate. So... I'm not sure. I'm not a botanist, but it seems like there's this whole complex of chemicals that give our brains a particular buzz. Yeah. And, and uh, like, you know, lots of them are in, well, it's like all those nootropic drinks and like Red Bull and balls. And <laughs> balls and um, monster. Yeah. Like those. They have, they, they all have, like they all have these various substances taurine. in them. They have taurine. Yeah, they have taurine and warana, all of ginseng. They have like all of that stuff. That all the stuff that makes my brain feel like it's going to shoot out my ears. Yeah. Woof. But it makes you good at gaming. Uh, nothing would do. Nothing can do that for me, I'm afraid. Um, but with that, listeners, we drain our cups and end this episode. We hope that this has refreshed and energized you. And thanks for listening. Yes, thank you. We will be back in your ears soon with more weekly content and for additional monthly shows and bonus goodies like videos and the occasional swag, you can support us at any level on patreon.com slash the dirt podcast. Yeah, you can also support us by leaving reviews and stars on Apple Podcasts and anywhere else you get your podcasts. And you can find us on the social medias. Over on Facebook, we're at the dirt podcast. On Twitter, we're at dirt podcast and on instagram we are at the dirt pod mm -hmm. and if you don't want to go to each of those places individually don't worry all that is together along with stuff you can buy including merch and sponsored episodes at our website thedirtpod.com thanks for listening everybody yeah we love you goodbye goodbye <laughs>